Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, governments and private debt. Time and time again, we hear about fiscal conservatism, balancing the books, even austerity, to get the government budget back into surplus because that's going to help the government pay off national debt. So they pay less in repayments and they have more money to spend on things that government spend money on. Now, regular listeners will know that's not exactly how things work out, but surely there is a need to keep that spending under control. But how much of it lately has involved passing spending onto individuals, like with student loans, for example? Instead of paying for a student's education, we get them to pay and reduce their spending on other stuff in the process. Isn't that just transferring responsibility while ensuring the finance sector gets a cut in the whole process? We'll look at government debt private debt and who gets involved in between today on the debunking economics podcast now we are all racking up more and more debt in theory government debt and private debt should be interchangeable shouldn't they steve so when one goes up the other goes down but that doesn't seem to be the case anymore so much of that is is due to government policy which is sort of blurring the lines isn't it between public and private spending uh, it's a complicated story. In fact, this is one where, like in, in general, the non-orthodox economic crowd, particularly modern monetary theory, uh, says, you know, the government debt doesn't matter. Um, private debt's what you should focus upon. And generally speaking, I'm, I'm in that camp. But one point which Richard Vague, who's the uh, leads the, the uh, I think it's called the Debt, e- Debt Economics Project in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania and uh, Philadelphia, one thing, he comes from a banker's point of view and just looks at the absolute data, and he makes the point that when you add together the two forms of debt, whatever you might say, one offsets the other, they've been rising over time. And just to give an idea of that, I've just plotted this data out of my combined uh, Federal Reserve and Bank of Ishmael Settlements and the US Census data. If you go back to the earliest record date in which we have Moderately reliable data. I had to do a bit of a bit of data interpolating to put this together. But you go back to 1834, the combined level of uh, government and private debt was 50% of GDP. If you fast forward to um, 1875, which is uh, you know, about 40 years on, it's 65% of GDP. If you hit uh, just after 1900, it's 85% of GDP. Uh, then you go through the Great Depression, the Second World War, and it hits, uh, I'll start with 1946, 150% of GDP. Mm. Uh, it then fell between the end of the Second World War and 1952 to 120% of GDP. And across that period, government debt was falling very rapidly, but private debt was rising. So it was actually a fall in government debt counteracted by a small rise in private debt that meant you got to 120% of GDP being the the aggregate debt level in 1951. Then from 1951 right across to 1981, pretty much the two levels flatline. You have, again, for the whole period, you had falling government debt and rising private debt. Now, that's when it all gets interesting because in 1982, and that tends to be a fairly significant date both in US and American data, 
I uh, UK the, data, I mean. Yeah. U, U, UK, UK, yeah. UK data and, and US data as well. That's when it's both started to rise. So from 1982, you had a rising level of government debt and a rising level of private debt. We then hit 19, well, let's put this up on the blog post as, a, as part of the, the graphics for the whole thing. 1988, you had, it started, the rate of growth started to slow down. Uh, and that stage, you had a, a bursting of a private debt bubble, and that led to falling private debt relative to government, the rate of GDP, even though de private debt was still, generally speaking, rising at that stage. So 173% there. It then out to 2001, 188%. Now, since 2001, uh, both private debt and government debt have most of the time been rising. You had a period of rising private, rising government debt and rising private debt until 2007, mainly private debt rising, government debt fluctuating a bit. Then since then, bang, it leapt up. And since 2011, but post, really post the crisis, falling private debt has been off by rising government debt. You now have a debt level of 251% of GDP. So what we've got over the, in the aggregate sense, this is Richard Bagg's point, it's gone by, it's increased by a factor of five. Yeah. The debt, okay. So the mix, the mix has changed, but it's always going up. So it's uh, so so, but as you said at the beginning, um, that government debt is 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 less important than the private debt because um, because private debt has to be repaid, and in the UK households, I mean, some figures we had from the Office of National Statistics, collectively now we, um, we until last year we haven't actually been spending for since I, I think in the nineteen eighty eight actually we haven't been spending more than we've been earning. But in 2017, net lending for the household sector was minus 22.6 billion pounds. The last time that measure was negative was 1988. So we were in the UK, this surprised me, for that long period of time, living within our means. 1988. I think I'm, I'm going to dispute that. Well, these, and, this, is, uh, this is what the ONS is saying. They're saying in 1988, the deficit was 394 million. Uh, last year, it was 22.6 billion. But in between... Uh, they're saying, well, no, there was no – the net lending was, uh, was, was, was not negative. I, I'm wondering where this data is coming from, how much massaging this data has copped, you know, and whether it had a happy ending. Uh, because <laughs> when, when, I, when I look at the – I'm looking at the data from the Bank of International Settlements now, which, of course, is taken from the Bank of England, of household debt in the UK – uh, and corporate debt in the UK, so breaking them both down. And that, what that implies is that the house sector has been net lending to the rest of the economy, which is the usual way this is seen. The households lend, corporations borrow, banks are intermediaries between the two. Does that ring any dangerous bells for you? Mm. Um, okay, from a post-Keynesian, endogenous money, real world part of it, that's not what households do at all. It's not what banks do at all. Uh, but looking at it, if that were true, you'd imagine that household debt uh, would be falling or your net assets would be rising. Net assets may be doing something different because of the inflation of the value of the housing sector, and that's what I think might be lying behind the data. It has been massaged to include the nominal value of household right. assets. Right. Because, because if I look at the level of household debt back in 1980 and for the for the um, pretty much two decades before, right back to 1967, household debt was 30% of GDP. Between 1980 and, uh, let's see... Uh, 1993, it rose to 60% of GDP, and between 2000 and 2010, it rose to basically 100% of GDP. 
But we've all got so much more, but we've all got much more expensive houses, so we feel good about that. So that's what I think is going on. They're, they're, right. they're, they're, they're treating it as if the assets and the liabilities are independent of each other. And what I, I know from doing the you know the non-orthodox economic analysis and this and the statistics as well, what drives asset prices is the level of leverage. So yeah. if you if you if you try to net out the two, you might well find that there's net lending going on. But you go, you, let's go and see if everybody in England tries to sell its house tomorrow. Mm. What what's the market price of those houses? Yeah. The, what the mistake <laughs> we make is we try to work out the so-called value of assets by modeling, multiplying the 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 number of houses by the marginal price. And this is one time I'll use the word marginal with with uh, with the malice of Thorford. The marginal seller. We 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 value the entire housing stock as if they the entire housing stock could be sold for the prices that roughly five percent get sold for every year, which is nonsense. Yeah. Um. So it's just crazy to value the assets that well, way. Well, we we value companies the same way, of course. I mean, if everyone sold their shares in a company at the same time, then uh, it, you'd only get a few percent in before the share price started to devalue and the, the house the, the the company is worth a lot less of course so the and same thing would crash as well pardon yeah. me being the economy would have a total plunge so it's nonsense to use that as a valuation for assets but that's what i'm sure is going on to come up with the conclusion that the house has only just started net borrowing when i look at the data again what i can see is that in 2010 uh households uh went went into into actually repaying their debts so that was not that they were doing it in any happy fashion, because that was the depth of the financial crisis. But at that stage, the change in household debt was minus uh, 1.4% of GDP. It's now risen up to being plus 4% of GDP. So I think that um, that transition, uh, that's because there's been an increase in borrowing without a great deal of change in house prices. And of course, we've seen some negative movements in house prices in London. Uh, and quite mm. negative across the whole of the UK between 2010 and now. I think that's why it's poking up in the data as the own national, Office of National Statistics is saying household sectors are finally net borrowing rather than net lending. Well, it's um, perhaps a combination of that plus the fact that we have been going backwards for a while as well. I mean, or, or just, you know, the, the, the wage increases versus... Uh, the the rate of inflation have been pretty much neck and neck, and sometimes actually uh, on the downside. So people have perhaps been borrowing more because they feel like they're forced to to in the short term. So that that might have been part of it as well. Yeah, but, this this includes payday lending as well. This data I so, mentioned. Now look, we, I mean, we are carrying. I mean, it did seem curious because we are carrying more debt. So stuff that you know, when you and I were young, and obviously it was a lot earlier in your case, but but the same thing applied. Oh, uh, we, well, that was that was very smooth. Very smooth. <laughs> the same thing applied. We had a free education. And now, yep. uh, you know, students uh, uh, have loans. They go and get bigger mortgages. Those loans have to be repaid. So we're sort of acquiring debt much earlier on, which obviously is curtailing our spending now. Um, and, you know, a lot of this is down to, to government policy as well. So, I mean, how much, of, how much are we actually pushing back spending through this sort, of, this sort of approach by government rather than just saying, okay, government spending, we're going to pay for everyone's education, done and dusted, uh, you've, you've got money to spend to keep the economy going, uh, you're not going to be uh, hindered by the thought of going to university um, because, because it's all paid for now. How much are we forestalling the problems, pushing them back to the future by pushing debt now? 
I think we're doing a lot of that. And I think this is a large part of why the economy is slowing down as well, because if you have students who have been graduating in the UK, they're now be graduating certainly with a debt level, if they just pay their tuition fees alone of £30,000, and if you include their accommodation costs as well, if they're paying that rather than living there with the, with the, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the housing block of mum and dad, yeah. um, they're, they're going to be paying £50,000, £60,000 debt uh, even before they get their first job. And so their focus is going to be on how do I pay my debt down to manageable levels over time, which means that even the thought of taking out a mortgage disappears. So consequently, rather than getting students, you know, new graduates taking out debt uh, by, by the time they turn 25 to buy a house, which is what happened back in your day and my day, um, instead they, they, they don't even think about it. And avocado on toast makes much more sense than trying to save for a house mortgage. You can you can never be able but to uh, be in the first place. So isn't but isn't that all good for the economy then? So I mean, if you look at let's look at for example, you know, I stayed in complete hovels because I didn't have a lot of money to pay for accommodation, uh, mm. because I didn't think about borrowing money to pay for accommodation. If I wasn't, you know, there's no way in the world the bank would have lent me the, lent me the mm. money. Um, so I had to stay in a hovel. Whereas I think now university students are staying in much nicer houses, and so they're pumping more money into the economy because they're paying a landlord. That landlord's got the money. To, to spend in the economy. So in some ways, I mean, is it curtailing uh, the, the, the level of spending in the economy? No, I, I, think, I think it's actually probably reducing spending on Main Street and increasing the spending on, on you, know, you can't call it Wall Street here, but the City of London. So it ends up going back to the financial sector where it spends over much more slowly and gives us a lower level of aggregate demand. For because, Main a, Street. because a chunk of that money is, is servicing that debt. Is the, is oh, the, totally. Yes, yeah. it's all servicing the debt. So I think, I think the, the general point coming back to it is there's too much debt. Uh, the answer is clearly yes. Does that also involve government debt? That's the that's the curly point from my point of view. Mm. Which it, I mean would be a would be a better way. So I mean between the two, we were carrying government debt before. Now it's actually private debt, uh, which is being um, which which is seeing its way through financial institutions. That's what in that in that example of education. That's what shifted. Yeah, uh, I think also if you let, let's take a look at the level of government debt historically as well, because that's another. Another uh, curly one, Look, looking at American data, again, I can go right back to uh, uh, the early 1800s for government debt. But what you find is that government debt was zero uh, between pretty much 18, let's see, 1836 and 1861. And then, of course, we had the little event called the, the, uh, the, the uh, Civil War, up to 30% down again before the First World War, through the First World War, up to 30% once more. And then the Great Depression comes along and bounces up to 110%. It's then down to 82, 1982, 35% again. So this 30% level seems to be the sign of uh, sustainable government debt not doing anything particularly dramatic. It's now up to 98%, less than a peak it reached during the Second World War, but no global war to uh, justify the level. Of course, plenty of uh, local American wars of national liberation around the world. I hope you pick up the cynicism in my voice there. Always. Um, always, always. But, but, it, but it seems that the, the government debt seems to go into cataclysmic behaviour when private debt does that beforehand. So, again, looking at the American data, what drove the uh, uh, the the crisis? I think what led to the great the, the second world the, the, the civil war in America in the first place was a huge plunge in credit. The, the crisis of eighteen the eighteen thirties, mm. uh, which, given all the politics that led to in America, ultimately you can see is maybe being responsible for the 
beginning of the Civil War. Then we had the Great Depression being preceded by the the uh, the, the sub the, the bubble of the 1920s of the Roaring Twenties. And then, of course, what we're going through now all dates back to when private debt again got out of control. And so what we've had is these compensating mechanisms by the, with government spending, attenuating how severe the downturn is going to be compared to what it would have been with the level of government spending back in the 1830s, but not getting away with the overall problem. And we end up continue clocking up this aggregate debt figure uh, including both government and private debt well and surely then it, it also depends i mean if you've got if you've got a period where private debt is is high and uh, that curtails spending so the private sector's got to kick in and so that raises spending to try and get the the, the economy back on track there's there's a whole sectoral question isn't there around that as to you know how that where's where's that government money going is it going into welfare is it going into healthcare? is it going into defense uh, is, yeah. is it going into education uh you know it yeah and this is what i find curious if i because i've had a look at how much we've been, we've been spending on government budgets in the uk since 1990 1990 public expenditure was 200 billion pounds this year it's four times that now, if you take uh, the 2018-19 budget, expects the the total managed expenditure, as they call it, is going to be uh, over 800 billion. Now, if you look at the population growth since 1990, it's only 10% growth in the population. And if you allow for inflation, then you'd expect that the government spending would have doubled. We would, go, would have gone from 200 billion to 400 billion, but it's 800 billion. So rather than doubling, it's quadrupled. And well, that's. That, yeah, that, that, that just seems like, I mean, you, when people go, well, you know, government spending is out of control, you can sort of see their point. You go, well, hang on a second. Why is it increasing so much? And I know you've got to look at it in relation to GDP, but do you? Because you're still well, dealing with the same number of people and you're still providing the same essential services to them. Let, let's, take, let's take a good look at the, uh, the English shutter, which goes way back to 1700 which yeah. is a, a fascinating time series, again, maintained by the Bank of England. And you'll find right back in 1700, the level of government debt was 8% of GDP. Now, from 1700 to 1800, right through to 1820, what would you say is the world's strongest economy? From where, so from where to where, sorry? From 1700 to 1820. The UK. Okay. Across that period of time, government debt rose from 8% of GDP to, wait for it, 253% of GDP. Mm. Okay. Now, so in other words, if, if this usual rhetoric was sold about the government going to debt promises future ruin, then how did that period England go from being the, you know, a fairly trivial uh, offshore uh, island in Europe to the dominant uh, global power, it then fell from 253 percent of GDP. But we were taking uh, over. We were graping and uh, you know we we're ta- ta- taking over nations uh, at that period well, as well. Maybe we you were, were financing. We were, we're, you- were making land grabs for other people's natural resources, for example. And we we're financing it perhaps by issuing government bonds. Yeah. So in, in this case, it's rather than being a source of ruin, it was actually a source of power. Right. And this is why the, the, the argument you have to invert how you think about government debt. Uh, from from the simple analogy to private, that is not the same because the government can issue bonds in its own currency, which of course the UK was doing throughout that period. It then financing that again was it was an accounting operation. Uh, back in the days of Jane Austen, the question was how many government bonds or how much land did the potential suitor own, and the more the government bonds were a way of distributing income to the ruling class fundamentally of England, but it was a quite successful way of doing it. Then from 1822 to 1912 government debt went from being 
250% of GDP down to 34% of GDP. Now, would you see that as a period of continuing increased ascendancy or a bit of a, a, a stop, the opposite direction? Yeah, well, obviously the opposite direction. Yeah, but, yeah and then so, so the, the, what we're saying, the, the rhetoric of government debt versus the directions is the opposite. But there has to be, but there has to be some balance, doesn't there? So we've had, I mean, just looking at this more recent period, and look, mm. a, a huge chunk of it is because healthcare costs have gone from twenty-five billion to one hundred and fifty-two billion. So it's three times higher than you'd expect from inflation and population. That's the area that's grown the most, and that's because we've got an aging population. Mm. Similarly, pensions mm. have gone uh, more, three times more than you'd, you'd expect as well. Um, education less so. Uh, defense is sort of pretty much in line with inflation, so it's really healthcare and pensions, all the stuff to do with a with a, with an aging population. Now we're yeah, to do, we've that, got, we've yeah, got to do that matters. Yeah, it does matter. We've got to do something other than you know letting people die. We have to um, we have to do that. But I mean that could uh, we could you could keep on saying well the government is going to keep on doing that and keep on putting money into it. Are you going to find a more efficient system that way? And I'm, and this, I'm, I can't believe this is coming out of my mouth. But if you had the private sector working on some of these solutions, maybe you'd have a more efficient response. And you've well, always got that that question, haven't you? About you know what what does the government do and what does the private sector do? And you know, and how do you make sure that you are allocating resources, court, you know, in the most efficient way to try and get the best, most productive outcome? Well, you have to look at what's the one one thing. You've got huge demographic trends being pushed through society at the moment. We have have got a dramatic increase in the age of the population because of improved health care, improved sanitation and so on. And that therefore means people are going to be spending a larger part of their, li- their lives not working. And the question is, have we increased our productivity sufficiently to handle that number of people over time? And the answer for quite some time is, frankly, yes, we have, because with more automation, with more me- uh, mechanisation of production, harnessing more energy, obviously, is my, my particular point here, uh, we have had the capacity to carry a large and non-working population. The question is, how do we give that non-working population access to it? It used to be that we did it through the pensions and through public health, certainly in England, and now the pressure is on to remove all those because of DD we can't afford it. I think it's got more to do with the failure on the distribution side uh, than it has in terms of our capacity to handle that many people who don't work. Because we should be, you know, if you look at the, uh, the trend of, of productivity over time should be reducing the extent to which uh, humans need to work to to harness energy in the universe to make it turn into useful work. That that should be an achievement, not a problem. Right. So, the uh, w- what is the ultimate best mix then between government debt and private debt? The private debt should be down to zero, and government debt should be as high as it needs to be to attain what, no. whatever the objective <laughs> is that we want. Well, that's actually uh, we've put some of these this data into the podcast uh, link, mate. But um, but. I think the government debt, as seen from the modern monetary theory perspective, is predominantly the record of how much money the government's created. Yeah. Uh, how how much money it's created, uh, if it's all being done for socially beneficial uses. So let's let's not include bombing Yemen in that. Let's include the national health and uh, and pensions and so on in that as a beneficial use of that money. But equally, a large part of the government spending might be coming out of compensating for breakdowns in the private sector. Uh, where the private sector is not investing enough or has borrowed too much money and so on. If that's contributing to the level of government debt, then we have a real real problem. And, and then again, looking at the data, you can see this uh, enormous change in the nature of the economy springing into a being, uh, just to give it a rough date to it, pretty much from the data springing in at about the early, the early ni- 1980s. And to, again, to finish off the verbal description of where 
uh, government debt got to, it, it, the government debt in the UK skyrocketed, uh, of course, during the First World War. So it went from, in that case, went from uh, 32% of GDP, again, low by historical circumstances compared to, to, compared to Britain, up to, um, let's see, before the 1920s began, 180% of GDP. It then fell during the, um, during the 19, 1920s, uh, rose and fell after the Second World War, hit a level of about uh, 200% of GDP before the Great Depression began. Compare these numbers, by the way, to what we're talking about today and what people are panicking about. Uh, during the 1930s, it hit 280% of GDP. It then fell throughout the uh, Great Depression because it wasn't as great for the UK as it was for America, and maybe that's because of the level of government spending too, down to 200% of GDP. Then during the Second World War, it reached a level of 338% of GDP, mm. or 339 at the peak. And then from the end of the Second World War, way forward, I was running down my simulation here, all the way through to the 19... Late 1970s and 80s, it was falling, and it got back down to being of the order of the very bottom level uh, in 1989-90. It bottomed out at 31%. Now, our reference point is this period of very low debt. When did it start skyrocketing again? Of course, after the financial crisis, 2007, uh, to be precise, it bottomed up at 43%. It then rose, and it's uh, now up to a level of 115% of that order. Mm. Now, that's what people are panicking about. Well, that's one-third the level of debt we got during the Second World War, yeah. one-half level Money, of there debt. there was a war on. There was, there was a war <laughs> on. But, that, the, the, but the, the, the peak period for UK debt was after the Napoleonic Wars and out to uh, the, you know, beginning, the middle of the range of Queen Victoria. Yeah. So uh, it, you, we, you have to see this in a long-term context, but it, it comes down to saying, why don't – this is actually Richard Vague's argument – why don't we just write some of the debt off? Well, and make and, it make it a national dividend. Right. Okay. So we do that. We call it make it a national dividend. Part of the, the you know the argument for having economics in the first place is because we want to allocate resources effectively. So if we if you have governments that are able to spend money with, without control, um, how do you ensure that they are allocating resources effectively? And that's where you start to say, well, let's turn to the private sector because they do have those controls. They've got to make a profit. They've got to pay dividends to shareholders. They've got to pay wages. Uh, and they can't borrow money uh, ad infinitum. So so on the one side, they've got controls. The government hasn't got controls. So that, that that's why we've got to have a balance between the two, isn't it? That's the argument people will use. But if you take a look at what happens as a result of that outsourcing, you often get total disasters occurring. Mm, yeah. And I think had an interesting conversation. Just, just British, just, British uh, Railways is a great example. <laughs> oh, compare or, British or, Railways to European Railways, you know, both in terms of cost and quality. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a sign that in make privatising stuff, which used to be government-based, can actually lead to catastrophe rather than to uh, liberation. It's one of the reasons Jeremy Corbyn's got such an appeal in the UK, because he's talking about renationalising all the stuff that was nationalised by the Tories and then by Blair, uh, in the argument that would make it a little more efficient and cheaper, and it ended up being sh shoddier and more expensive stuff coming out as well. So um, we, we can make mistakes about thinking that the private sector's efficiency, which applies when they produce things like vehicles, will turn up when they produce things like tr like trains or train systems. And uh, so there's, there's a huge amount of murky material in how we finally clarify the best understanding we can have of the roles of the private sector and the public. And from my point of view, it comes down to 
frequently saying, how long-lived is this resource? Uh, how, how open to competition is this resource? And if the answer is long-lived close to forever and open to competition is close to not at all, you'd prefer to have the government doing that. Uh, it's when you've got uh, plenty of competition and the thing might die out in 10 or 15 years, then you want the stuff to go down right by the private sector. It, and the private sector will frequently uh, end up in its own, shooting itself in its own foot by trying to minimise its cost by outsourcing, mm. uh, again, doing what the government is effectively doing and finding that it actually ends up to adding to costs rather, rather than improving them. So it's, it's a very, very murky set of issues we've dived into here there's a divide as well isn't there between you know outsourcing where the government says okay well we can't run trains so we'll get someone to do it for us but we're still going to pay for it versus where the government actually sort of outsources money which is sort of what we do you know if we go back to those student grants again rather than government saying well look, we're going to pay for everybody to go to university they're, instead they're saying well we're going to allow you to go to university if you get a loan and uh, we're not going to do the loan we're going to outsource that to the to the finance sector mm. they're going to pay for it and so they scoop some of the money out um, in terms of the interest they charge on the, on that loan. So, um, th- I mean, that that is a bad hybrid model. There's all sorts of bad hybrid models out there, which is what is so irritating. I saw a lovely tweet. Uh, some government uh, minister was complaining about universities prioritising fee raising and, and, and profitable activities. And uh, somebody said, newsflash, government... Uh, this expresses shock that universities, when made to be, when, when encouraged to behave like private sector companies, behave like private sector companies. Um, <laughs> which is that, which, let me give you an interesting example. Actually, in the United States, there's some colleges over yeah. there now that are offering free tuition in exchange for a slice of your future income, which is sort of a bit the same, isn't it, really, as saying, well, okay, we're going to give you a loan. Um, I mean, would that be, is that better? Does that curtail spending I, I, or change I, I, behavior? I, I, this, this is one of the areas where I'd see government spending on education as one of the classic ways in which you'd want the government to create money because if the government creates money and it does it to bomb Yemen, that's rather different than if it does it to give students uh, university degrees. For a start, the money uh, given to the military uh, will not be spent broadly throughout the entire community, whereas you give it to students, they'll be going up to the local kebab shops um, and, and vaping shops and God knows what else, uh, but they distribute the government-created money through this through the society much more effectively than m- the military spending of, of government will do. Uh, and then it, it, it makes sense to say that's one area the government should do without imposing a burden on students, because by, when you when you when you make it privately provided and provide debt as well, the students can spend less effectively, actually reduce aggregate demand in the economy, and you have private organisations out there which are doing it for a profit rather than to do it for decent education. And in that situation, it's a good idea to pass everybody, which means you get a, a form of degree inflation and, and de- degradation of the quality of the education. So there's areas yeah. where you simply should not be doing it, should not be privatising, and you should be putting up whatever government spending is necessary to do that. And I guess the fundamental question is, should we borrow to invest as, as individuals or should the government be making the investment uh, or at least have some involvement in it. So, you know, in education, in social housing, in transport, I mean, it makes sense the government pays for those things now rather than us borrowing to pay for those things and then having to pay them back over over our lifetime. Yeah, we don't need the financial sector to do it because the government can create, can create its own money, can finance this through its 
you know, the combination of the Treasury and Central Bank. We know that it can do that. And partly not understanding that that can be done is a large part of where these travesties come from. People so, in politics believe the government has to tax to spend those money. So when the finance sector is getting involved in financing these these sorts of things, what's sort of what is the seepage of the money that is going into the finance sector for to to fuel their game rather than the purpose for which the money is intended for? Whether it is in investing in transport or or paying for someone's education. There's a huge proportion of it. This really is a way that the financial sector gets its fingers into a pie that's very lucrative and it wants the money and maybe half the money ends up going into the financial sector wow. rather than rather than being actually used for its real purpose. And this is all, one, one of the general traps of outsourcing. And I've seen this not just in terms of what the government does, but even in private organisations. Bumped into a guy, I won't give, uh, we didn't exchange details, but this is in my recent set of travels around the globe. Um, he was working for a company which produced a, a form of chip and they said the machine in produced and used in America produces 9 million units per year with two workers. Sorry, 14 million units per year with two workers and it's being used in China where it's producing 9 million with six workers. And you can't work out what the other four are doing. It's all the sort of social hierarchy, don't make mistakes attitude that occurs in some parts of China compared to America. But the outsourcing, you said... It certainly cost the firm money and they would have been better keeping the stuff domestically in the first place. So a lot of these things are sold as ideas like private par public partnerships, the private sector will do it more efficiently, yada, yada, yada. And when you look at the amount of slices that are going on and the outsourcing that the outsourcers do to other outsourcers to get their contract, you end up putting so many additional margin costs inside there that you lose money rather than save money. Right. But what when the government does something that the private sector could do? You know, that whole crowding out argument that, you know, you're squeezing out somebody who could actually do what you're doing more effectively. So uh, let's look at Australia. Let's look at the National Broadband Network. I mean, I'm fairly certain if the government had put, hadn't put money in and stuffed it all up and they had uh, enabled free competition, in other words, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd attack the, the, the monopoly power of Telstra, you would have had the National Broadband Network or something equivalent to it, possibly something better than getting now, delivered decades ago. Uh, that's right. That's one of the arguments that you can critique the basic idea of the modern monetary theory argument. The government uh, should fund for all this stuff. I'm not saying it's just modern monetary theory, but the argument I'm putting here about you know, should the government choose it. You can get assholes running governments. And dare I say it, there have been a couple of recent assholes running a government that's sort of below the equator and has lots of white people in it. Um, yeah, and, and, but but okay. but it is okay. But it, it, there will be. I mean, that's one example. There'll be other examples where. I mean, again, it's how do you draw the line, and where do you draw the line? How do you make the call? to mm. say the government should do this and the government shouldn't do that because the private sector can do this just as well. Not the government outsourcing to the private sector, the government taking a step back and saying, well, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll put some regulations in place, but let's, let, let's leave this for free market forces because it's going to get a better I, I, outcome. I think, it's, I think it's an area where you, where, where you expect a lot of innovation to come from the small-scale operations, uh, you know, things like vehicles, computers and so on. Uh, you don't want that sort of stuff centralised. You do want innovation to be the pressure that drives that particular, those particular sectors of the economy. When you're talking about grand-scale infrastructure things, uh, then most of the time the, the answer is going to be it's better if it's done 
getting the enormous economy scale that the government can done and not being done for a profit, being done to provide services that the rest of us have off the backbone. So the national broadcasting network was a, was a travesty caused by uh, Malcolm Turnbull, which, as you know, should should have known damn side better than to talk anything that's stupid. Well, starting now, the, problem, the problem started well before Turnbull, I think, actually. But, I mean, it was just a, you know, an example of, of how you draw the line. And similarly... Ah, but I, I, I think Turnbull made it worse by, by showing, oh. going to the idea of fibre to the household versus fibre to the node. Yeah. That was a huge technical technological mistake uh, made by politicians for the sake of political gains. That's the sort of stuff that people who criticise government spending in the first place have as an apt example. And the irony is it's done by a so-called conservative government rather than rather than done by a, a Labour government. So that, so I'm trying to figure out what we're learning here today. On, on the one side, I mean, we're saying that inco- the total debt doesn't matter so long as it, the the private sector element of that debt isn't getting out of kilter. We can live with government debt growing because it's not really debt as such. The government can can issue bonds so long as it's so long as it's not stepping into an area which the private sector could be doing with it because we need that to to manage the the, the constraints of resources and to make sure stuff is done efficiently. But beyond that. Um, we need the government to step in because they need to help to grow the economy and things that the private sector is not going to do. Like, for example, looking after old people and paying pensions to old people and getting our kids educated. It's a, Let's say it's a very, very murky area that takes more than a single podcast to yeah, yeah, answer. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we do have all those issues. You do have an issue that maybe we've accumulated too much debt and we could use our mechanisms uh, for money creation to write that debt off both at the government level and the private level so we remove this particular issue in the first place. That's largely you know, Richard Vague's argument. We also have to say there is something which the private sector does do better than the public sector, of course, and we should you know, not have the government getting involved in you know, trying to do you know, small-scale innovation. Of course, as, as Mariana Mazakuda makes a very good point, they do very, very good large-scale innovation, and this is because the government can afford to lose money doing things like flying rockets to, to the moon long before the private sector would ever consider it. 30 years later, you get companies like Tesla, uh, like SpaceX turning up. Uh, and you need to look at, uh, at the, do you, are you looking for efficiency or are you looking for reliability? So an electricity supply, you don't want the most efficient electrical system. You want one that's never going to break down. And maybe in that sense, the public sector is better at providing that sort of thing than the private sector would be. So there's lots and lots of murky issues here. And unfortunately, un- ideology, both of left and right, tends to get in the way of solving those problems. Yeah. Well, um, and, and, you know, there's, there's, um, every every single line on a budget is a question. So pensions, £165 billion a year in the UK. Why not give every pensioner twice as much and make it £300 billion a year? What would be the problem with doing well, that? Well, that would actually be more aggregate demand, demand creation. And this is a, a, a that's that's a large part of what the government is actually doing because we know the private sector will not distribute income to the unemployed uh, to pensioners unless they actually are owners of capital in the first place and therefore don't necessarily need it. So a large part of the population is going to end its working life at the age of sixty to sixty-five has to live another thirty years. If we say it's only what you've saved is all you, you, the income you've saved is all you're going to get there, we get a huge class divide where the working ex-working class become uh, you know, homeless and the, and the wealthy live behind uh, gated comp- compounds, that is not a society anyone wants, wants to live in uh, in the long term. And that is unfortunately where we head if we don't have the government providing a good living for those who are no longer are old enough to be expected to work in the first place. So providing a decent standard of living for the, for the aged is, is part of a decent society. When you have that capacity and your level of 
productivity to the economy as a whole, which countries like the UK and the USA certainly should have and certainly do have. Um, but you, if, if we, what we've instead of tried to privatise that as well and say it's what you're, you're saving to let you do it. Well, that means if you're rich, you're going to live well and you're old. If you're poor, you're going to have a shit life. You may die uh, you know, yeah. preventable diseases earlier. Mm. That is not the sort of world we want to create. And getting past the... Uh, pushing back that ideology and saying we would like our senior citizens to live a comfortable life. And if they do, then their spending is providing part of the aggregate income for the rest of society. We can afford to do this once we have the productive cap capacity in place, which we certainly had and would have more of if we weren't making these stupid decisions about trying to privatise taking care of yourself in your old age and so on. So um, you've talked in the past many times about sort of, you know, eradicating uh, private debt by some sort of uh, moratorium, just uh, basically saying let's write it all off and, you know, almost let's, let's, let's start again because we are – being because growth is being held back because of because of this debt could we do rather than doing that could we just uh use government spending increase government spending and pinpoint it in certain ways pensions are a great example you know the one we've just given could that oh. be a way of, of of eradicating that problem getting over the problem of of, of rising private debt and because we you know because there's that interplay between the two that is possible the trouble is that that then leads to the political reaction about oh the government debt's got too high let's cut it back again so mm. it's the sort of thing you could do if we understood the system properly given the fact that there's not only a minority of people actually understand the role of government spending and the role of the private sector spending in the fact of creating money inside the economy. Given that lack of understanding, the political backlash from rising government debt will get in the way. So I, I, I think, to my way, I've said this in quite a few podcasts, I think we'll never resolve these things sensibly. <laughs> what will cause us to resolve this instead is an existential crisis, global warming, meaning the government has, has to mobilise as many resources as it can and, the, and, the, and how it mobilises the little green pieces of paper to get us all out there trying to reduce the damage we've done to the climate will be immaterial, just like it was uh, when we were trying to stop the Nazis taking, right. over, taking over Britain. It's our new and we will do it by accident rather than deliberately. Right, so it's our next war. It's a war against the environment rather than a war against the Germans, uh, which, uh, which will cost a lot more, of course. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it uh, might save the economy in the process. Very good, Steve. Excellent. Always uh, very uplifting talking to you when you end on these <laughs> high notes. <laughs> we'll see you again soon. Are you allowed to use irony at the end of a podcast? Yeah, we can do it wherever we want on this podcast. Okay, all right. <laughs> see you soon. Okay, mate. Bye. All right. So, do you want more irony? Well, next time uh, we'll talk about what a great job Donald Trump is doing. Or not, as the case may be. Well, he's doing a great job of isolating America, isn't he? He seems to be bringing the rest of the world together against him. So what are the implications of his trade war, his tax cuts, his budget deficit? We'll look at all of that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.